Well, as we continue in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, I would ask that you would open your Bibles to Matthew 7. Uh, We'll be looking at the 21st through 23rd verse this evening. You'll find that on page 812 in the Pew Bible if you're using a Pew Bible. Now, this is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. The word of God says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts now. Illumine our minds concerning the things that you would have us to know, to understand. Illumine our minds that we might grow in the image of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. In a recent sermon, I I mentioned that according to the Pew Research Center, 65% of adults who live in the United States of America claim to be Christians. 62% of those who were polled claim they were members of a church. Now, this immediately caused a disconnect in my mind because in my mind, Christians are called to emulate Christ. In John 8, 31, for example, we hear Jesus saying, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. When I hear those words, the the disconnect that I have increases, and, and that's because the Jesus that I know through his special revelation, the Bible, was a person that was distinctively, noticeably holy, a person whose chief pursuit was fulfilling the will and purposes of God and not his own desires. Folks tried to scandalize his name, but in the end, even those who persecuted him to the extreme had to admit that he was innocent of all charges. There was no fault to be found in him. When he spoke confidently of his relationship with the Father, he could do so because the evidence supported every single claim he made. He perfectly emulated the Father. He revealed him and glorified him. But contrasts, by contrast, many of those who are named among the 65% would confidently tell you that if they were to die today, they would go to heaven. They will tell you this without any hesitation or doubt whatsoever, even though they're involved in a same-sex union or they're living with a person of the opposite sex outside the bonds of wedlock. Some are swindlers, greedy, idolaters. The whole list of things that you see in Galatians 5, they practice those things. They love nothing or no one more than themselves, and whatever gives them the most pleasure in the pursuit of self is actually their God. Some pass pro-abortion legislation on Monday and take communion on Sunday with a clear conscience. 
Some use abortion as a means of contraception. This is a tool which allows them to appease their God. And in the midst of this disconnect, I cry out to God, asking how, how can this be? I know your grace is sufficient, but how can this be? How can so many walking around gratifying the lust of their flesh, openly practicing these things, call you this? How can they say and believe earnestly in their heart that they're Christians? Brothers and sisters, the answer to these questions, to this particular question, comes to us right here in this passage. But there's more, much more that can be said about these folks who are confident in their final destination. For you see, the folks that I open with are guilty of that which many of us recognize as being wrong. But here in this passage, we'll see that there are many in contrast to those I just mentioned, who appear to have been doing the right thing in God's sight. But as you'll see in both cases, deception is the key ingredient involved in their waywardness. And so with those thoughts, those words before us, let's look at this passage under three headings. Faith by works, faithless works, and the faith of the faithless. So first, faith by works. Concerning the answer to my question, how can this be? Without delay, Jesus gives us the answer. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Here again, we're struck with the realization that the folks of whom I've already referenced and those who Jesus was alluding to here really and truly affirmed that Jesus was their Lord. We know this because here we find them using the word Lord in context. And in context here, it, it would have been akin to how the emperor in that day uh, would be addressed. He was the supreme authority in the Roman kingdom and was to be acknowledged as such. Here Jesus is speaking of entering his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And notice the use of the emphatic. There's a use of an emphatic when he's speaking here. They're saying, or what they're speaking here, they're saying, Lord, Lord. They're not just affirming that he's their Lord. They're emphasizing it. But something is missing. Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of the Father. Now, if you're like me, your initial thought as you were wrestling with this text and, and you read what I just said, you, you'd be asking, but wait a minute, Lord. Didn't the Apostle Paul write in Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he basically asserted the same thing in Romans 3 when he wrote, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what's going on here, Lord? What, what's going on? At this point, I was reminded of the words of the apostle James found in James 2, verses 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, James says, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith by works. And now the floodgate of God's word as given by his Holy Spirit starts flooding the mind and we're reminded of Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to him, to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So from all this, we conclude that Jesus is saying that it's only those who have genuine faith a saving faith that manifests itself through the work that first submits itself to the will of the Father, goes through the narrow gate and moves down the hard path, all for the purpose of glorifying, of bringing glory to the Father. Only those who engage in that way will enter the everlasting kingdom. These folks lacked genuine saving faith. And thus in Luke 6, 46, we hear our Lord asking them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer, but he's grabbing them. He's grabbing us by the shoulder and saying, wake up, climb up from under your wake, your web of deception and place your trust in me and me alone. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he says, in Matthew 3, 8, or as the New Living Translation phrases the same verse, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Unfortunately, for many, this will not happen, for they will go on on this side of life continuing to believe they are in right standing with God, fervently holding to that belief. And if you were to ask them, why? Why are you fervently holding to that belief? They would respond as they did to our Lord right here, our next point, which brings us to our next point, faithless works. These folks would not heed the word of the Lord on this side of life. They did not embrace the fact that salvation comes or came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like the demons the Apostle James speaks of in James 2.19, they too believe and tremble, but like King Saul, they chose to go their own way. And so here we find them on the day of judgment. On that day, verse 22 tells us, like criminals, you've seen this on, on television sometimes, like criminals unskilled in the law, pleading their own case before a perfect judge. Lord, Lord, we hear in verse 22. Connect that address to the three uses of in your name, all three in that verse, which are, they're in the emphatic. So what you have here is a true recognition of Christ's significance by those who are addressing him. They in line with Philippians 2.10, understand who he is. They understand that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. They know it. They understand it. But here, instead of communicating with words that demonstrated a total dependence on him, they exclaim, did we not prophesy? Did we not preach? Did we not proclaim? Did we not speak in your name and cast out demons 
in your name and do mighty works in your name. Beloved, don't miss this. Do not miss this. They, like many of us, were fervently engaged in ministerial service. There were pastors, priests, self-professed prophets, and evangelists, sold-out people who earnestly believed they were serving God. It reminds me of a season of time when I was an avid TBN watcher. TBN is a Trinity Broadcasting Network, and if you are still watching that, I forgive you. There were several pastors and, and teachers who seemed to be on the network station every single day. Additionally, you would hear that they were involved in this conference and that conference, this ministry initiative, that ministry initiative, and then the biggie, the frequent on-air fundraisers they would participate in to raise money for the network. During those fundraisers, all these different pastors would take portions of scripture and use them topically to raise funds, to raise money. It did not take me long, by God's grace, to realize how badly they were misrepresenting what the text was saying in order to achieve their stated end. Notice what I said, their stated end, not the Lord's. Zacchaeus, as an example, there's one that preached on Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was, I always remember Zacchaeus because he was my height, you see. And so they, he's preaching about Zacchaeus being up in the trees. Zacchaeus went, Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. And then Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Notice the object is Christ. And it is a salvation that he's offering to a sinner who has repented, acknowledged his sin. But here I sit. Now, this is me actually in a service, in a morning service. And this particular passage is used to say, get ready for your miracle, to prime us for a miracle healing crusade in our evening service. Yes, your little guy up here has participated in one of those, or some of those, okay? And over and over and over again, you see the same thing. The scripture's being uh, distorted for a certain end. And it's not just for those things, but it happens all the time. And so I would say to you, Follow me down this train of thought. Think about this for a second. You and I are great friends, best of friends. So whoever your friend is right now, get rid of them for now, okay? I'm your best friend. But every time I spoke about something you shared with me from your heart, every time I spoke concerning things that based on your inherent right as a person created in God's image, I had the responsibility of accurately representing what you want or what you said. But what if instead of doing that, I always twisted what you said for my own benefit? If doing that to you was my common way of dealing with you, how would you feel? And what if you realized that I was prone to doing that over and over and over again? And so you as my good friend came to me and lovingly asked me to cease that practice but I continue to do it anyway. And in spite of that, in spite of you communicating your concern to me, in spite of me being fully aware of how you feel, what if I reason in my mind, oh, it's okay, the ends justify the means. When I accomplish my goal, he or she will see that I was doing it for them. They'll understand, 
He or she will see that all along I meant it for their good. I'm actually doing it in their best interests. What if that happens to you? When you feel like, man, this person is calling me friend. Dean is calling me a friend, but there's no way he really knows me. There's no way he understands me. There's no way he knows what I want. And you know what? I don't think he really cares. Well, that's what's going on here. These folks call Jesus Lord, but their actions don't reflect that fact. God says clearly, don't add to his word or take away from it. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Now notice something that's interesting here. Jesus doesn't refute their assertion that they performed the acts they did. They may very well have done them. Judas performed miracles, but his heart wasn't right. And we know how that ended. We also know that God had previously enabled others who uh, perform amazing acts. God enabled them to do so. For instance, he put words in Balaam's mouth, even though he was a false prophet of the most wicked order. In 1 Samuel 10, 10, we find King Saul accurately prophesying. This was well after he had apostatized, moved away from God. And in the New Testament, we find Caiaphas, the wicked high priest, prophesying. You see this in John 11. He's prophesying that Jesus was going to die for the nation. We should also be aware of the biblically revealed fact that God isn't the only one who has miraculous power. Satan has powers that God has allowed him to have. He has power to a certain degree. In Matthew 24, we find Jesus sharing information concerning the end of this age. In verse 23 and 24, he says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You might also wonder or remember the time when God sent Moses to Pharaoh. This was found in Exodus 7. Moses, in accordance with God's will, had Aaron turn his staff into a serpent. In response to that, Pharaoh's sorcerers did the same thing. They turned two staffs into two serpents. But Aaron's staff ate up those staffs. And then as time went on, they were, they, they were able to also copy the, the, the miracle of turning the Nile into blood, but beyond that, they could do nothing else because Satan only has power to a certain degree, but nevertheless, he has power and can give that power or work through people who are even standing in the pulpits of America. So the bottom line is religious performance or service in of itself, no matter how great, is not an accurate indicator of a person's relationship with God or their final destination when their time has come to an end here on earth. And this brings us to our final point, the faith of the faithless. The folks whom Jesus is referring to here in our text are facing the perfect judge who is full of love and mercy. That's the absolute best thing one could hope for if one had to be judged. 
Who would you want to go before but a judge who you know was pure, was loving, was kind, was full of mercy, was not deceptive, issued everything perfectly? Who else would you want to go before? This is who they're before. But even greater than the fact that he is the perfect judge, full of mercy and love, is the fact that he is more than a judge. Our God is more than a judge. He's also a justifier and a way maker. This judge out of the abundance of his love for the one he is judging went above the call of duty and established. He didn't owe us anything. He didn't owe this person, these people, anything. But he went beyond the call of duty and established a way for them. When there seemed to be none, this way entailed something as simple as recognizing one's guilt, confessing it, then solely relying on the mercy and actions of the judge. This way results in the judge getting to know the one being judged and the one being judged getting to know the judge, both grown intimately in love with one another. But alas, instead of seething to this wonderful way which was established by the judge, the lives of the folks in our text and many who profess the name of Christ today can best be described by the title of one of Frank Sinatra's most well-known song, My Way. I did it my way. And so here on that day, on the day of judgment, they're still confidently resting on the things they had done, still wholeheartedly believing they were genuinely doing so in service to the Lord. How could they have been so deceived? How could they? Let me quickly propose four possibilities. Didn't make this up on my own. I gleaned this from John MacArthur's commentary on this particular text. So first, some hold to a, a false view of assurance. These folks were told all they had to do was walk an aisle, raise a hand, say a prayer, believe it, and that's it. They were saved. There's no need to bear fruit unto repentance, no need to grow in grace, no need to be engaged in the convicting work of the Spirit, and no need to walk obediently before their God. Just say a prayer. Romans 10.9, believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth. Come down the aisle and that was it. In 2019, I went to South Florida to take a class, and I was able to guest preach uh, that evening. And that church typically has a, an altar call, but my convictions would not let me uh, do it. So I asked one of the assistant pastors if, if he could do it. Because you see, in my heart and my understanding, people come down. The message might not even say anything about their sin, might not even say anything about Christ, might not speak of the gospel centrally. All, all messages stood, but it might not be central. And yet here people after people after people, week after week after week, are responding to pastors just humming, mm-hmm, and coming to the altar and, and saying they believe in Jesus. And then they walk away and they live like hell and they think that on this day, they're going to be with Christ. Deceived. Some per, uh, fall prey to self-deception because the second they feel to heed the, heed the scriptures call for self-examination. We hear this every time we come to the Lord's table. Therefore, let a man examine himself. 
We are called to examine ourselves every single time we come to the Lord's table. And we are supposed to be participating in the table as often as we come. And so every true church is going to have the Lord's table. And every single time you should be calling people to examine themselves. So they're hearing this and they're failing to heed it. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we read, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So self-examination through the use of the world's, the world's greatest mirror, the Bible, the scriptures, is an essential guard against self-righteous deception. A third cause of self-deception, believe it or not, can be an inordinate focus or concentration on religious activities. God has given us the means of grace by which we were to grow. We are to grow in his word, the sacraments, prayer, fellowship. There are a bunch of activities we can and should engage in. Singing of songs of faith, uh, believing, attending Bible study and, and, and Sunday school, all sorts of different activities. But when those things insulate you from the very God you are claiming to serve, relationally wise, then there's an issue there. And think about it. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were guilty of this very thing. They were by far the most involved individuals in the things of God. They were the ones who had the oracles of God handed to them. They were the ones that were in the temple every time the doors opened. But when God himself showed up on their front door, they did not know him. Think about that. Lastly, a fourth cause of self-deception is the 51-49% fallacy. That's where one holds to the notion that they do more good than bad. They'll be okay. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that the folks in this passage failed in one or more of these areas. And we are to take heed lest we do the same. So on that day, the day of judgment, we see them earnestly continuing to tout what they had done and not what Christ had done as their means of justification. And then we see these words that none of us, none of us, every time, my whole time that I've been earnestly seeking and, and walking, every time I see this passage, I'm like, oh, these are words none of us wants to hear. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The word declare here is used in a formal legal sense. A final verdict is being handed down. Remember, the judge is also the way maker. The judge is also the creator and sustainer of the universe. And as such, he was the one who made all the rules, rules that were consistent with his perfect nature. So the rules are all perfectly just. And any lack of conformity to them is to be punished. And rightly so. And so as we look at this the unfolding of this courtroom drama, as we look at it and unfold before us, we see that there are two declarations and a just pronouncement. 
Remember we heard that the wake maker's means of exoneration that, that he wrought, the way that he wrought out of the abundance of his love results in an intimate relationship with him. Jesus, here Jesus says, I never knew you. That is, I know of you. I know all about you. I created you, so I know all about you. But there is no intimate relationship here. No relationship brought about, but a means that I established. You do not know the Father, and you do not know the Son. You do not know the Son, and therefore it is abundantly clear that you do not know the Father. You did not have the Spirit guiding you. What you had was your way. The second declaration is that they are workers of lawlessness. All sin is lawlessness. And every lack of conformity to God's will is sin. They did it their way, their practice, their modus operandi, entail doing but not in, according with God, in accordance with God's word and will. And the verdict we see here perfectly reflects that fact. Christians, all of us who truly belong to Christ, we sin, but we don't practice sin. That's the difference. We strive to live according to the will of our God. We do not strive to live according to the will of our flesh. They strive to live in accordance, we do with God's will as revealed in his word. So finally, weak nookness, the end of it all. The verdict has been rendered. They are guilty. And now the punishment is rendered. The gavel has been struck. And the punishment is now rendered. Depart from me. They're sentenced to hell. Many don't even believe that hell exists. People who are literally in church every Sunday literally do not believe that hell exists. But they don't have to believe me. They just need to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, which is right in line with this. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Revelations 20, 15, we hear these words. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Final verdict for those who trusted, who did not have true, genuine, saving faith, that trusted in Christ and Christ alone. When the gates of hell, or, or the gates of heaven rather, fly open and you leave this body, and you're in the presence of the Lord, and you hear, why should I let you in here? What is going to be your retort? I submit to you that if it's those who are really his and his and truly his and were guided by his spirit, they're going to fall down, bow down, and say, Christ and Christ alone. That is where I stand. Nothing of my own I bring. Nothing. These folks in this passage cannot say that. God indeed calls us to do, to perform, to engage, to carry out the Great Commission. But in the midst of all the things that you can get involved in, in the midst of all the things that you can do, do you know him?
Do you know him? Church Sunday after Sunday, involved in all kinds of things, do we know him? Preparing this sermon, I kept saying to myself, Lord, I don't care what I do, what I've done. Please let it not be that I don't know you. Please have mercy on me. Please hold on, grab me, because I know me. And I know I can stand no way, no one else can if they understand your word, if they understand who they are. So all I want is you. Make me yours. And so when I hear messages like what Caleb preached this morning about running the race, about pressing on, you heard me talk about the same thing. That is like fuel to my fire. When I hear about my sin, I want to hear because like I want to be the person like when he responded to Nathan. I want to respond humbly. When Solomon heard Nathan, I want to be able to respond humbly. And I want all of us to be able to do the same when we are confronted with God's word. And all of us know and understand that, oh my goodness, we have no hope. You can come to church every single day, every week, every Sunday, and sing songs about we have no hope, oh, you those Christ, but do you know him? Is that really in your heart, or are you just saying it out of your mouth, and it's not really in your heart? Beloved, let that be what is in our heart, that Christ is our all and all, and all we do, we do because of our relationship with him, not because we have head knowledge, not because it makes us feel good because we're doing things, but because we know him and he's working in and through us for his glory. Let's pray. A glorious heavenly father, we fall upon you and your mercies asking that you would indeed grab hold of us and sink these words deep into our hearts. May it be so that each and every one of us recognize that we were indeed workers of lawlessness. We continue to be sinners, but we are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners who you have grabbed hold of and have made your own. Make it so, Lord, that if there's any around us, among us, who are operating outside the realm of knowing you, would you grab hold of them this very day? I think of all those pastors who were in pulpits for years and years and years and said, I did not know him over all those years. And then they came to faith. Would you have mercy on us? Grab hold of each and every one of us and by the power of your spirit, bear witness that you know us and we know you. Cause us to continue to walk, enabled by the power of spirit to walk obediently before you. All to the praise of your glory. All to the spreading of the fame of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.